Hello, and welcome to the Bizarre and Fascinating Details Podcast. I'm your host, Sarah, and I've got Darcy with me. How you doing, Dars? Hey, what's up? I'm doing all right. How about you? From the southern part of the country, and I'm back in the midwestern part of the country. Yeah. Yeah, we just got here yesterday. Oh my god, it was insane. Our flight was supposed to leave. We flew into Vegas for the weekend to like, you know, blow off a little steam or whatever. Had a fun time. Just, you know, had a nice chill weekend and we were supposed to fly out of Vegas at six AM yesterday Mm -hmm. on a Sunday. And um our flight we got to the airport, nothing happened, it was uneventful and we took, we were go, taxiing down the runway to take off, and they all of a sudden at the last minute as we're like sitting in line, they go, oh, whoops, we got to go back to the gate. We've got a mechanical issue. Oh, man. And so we're like, oh, crap. So we pull back to the gate, and we're hoping it's like a minor thing, and we sat there for almost three hours until they finally deplaned and said, sorry, it's something we've got to order a part for. Yeah. That happened but, to me on a trip to Jamaica. But that's not it. Oh, they, they wouldn't give us an update and they were yeah. like they wouldn't give us our luggage back and they wouldn't give us an update they were like yeah. oh we'll keep you posted we sat there all day our flight yeah. left at six o'clock that night so we sat in the airport for 12 hours and to add insult to injury they go everyone come up to the counter and get a food voucher so that mm-hmm. you can get something at the airport to eat you know want to want to guess how much the voucher was for ten dollars eight dollars eight dollars nice you can't get anything in the eight. You can't even not get a cup of coffee airport. in the airport yeah. for $8. Yeah. It was like, what? Yeah. And not only that, but all the stores around our gate wouldn't take the voucher. What? None of the stores or restaurants around the gate would take the voucher. That sucks. Yeah. So we were all just like, okay, this is annoying. Yeah. Luckily, uh, Mike has an American Express card, so we were able to go into the American Express lounge. Oh, we had to nice. go to a different terminal for it, but, like, we still had some place to go where we could sit yeah. and plug our computers in and actually work that wasn't just crazy. But it was like, oh, my God, it was exhausting. We got home at midnight last night oh. after we literally – we didn't even sleep because we had to leave the hotel at 3 a.m. So we're like, might as well just stay up and go straight yeah. to the airport. And, oh, my God, it was just – it was crazy. We drank so much. It's ridiculous. Just we were like, what else are we going to do? <laughs> <laughs> right? Um, okay. We got some interesting stuff today. All right. I'm going to talk about some stuff that that I saw in the news that I thought was interesting. Okay. Linda Evangelista settles cool sculpting lawsuit. Yes. Did you see that? I saw this. I was kind of appalled by this because I haven't done cool sculpting, but I thought it was a safe procedure and did not have any idea that this was a potential side effect. But she settled a lawsuit with a Zeltic aesthetics after she says cool sculpting procedures led her body to become disfigured in september she filed a 50 million dollar lawsuit against this corporation after revealing she'd been out of the spotlight after being diagnosed with this thing called paradoxical adipose hyperplasia which she Hmm. attributed to her cool sculpting sessions so according to the mayo clinic Cool sculpting is an FDA-cleared procedure that uses controlled cooling to safely target and eliminate diet and exercise-resistant fat. So just as a side note, I got this as a present for Mike, my significant other, because he had this little kind of tummy pooch that he couldn't seem to get rid of no matter how much he worked out. And Mm -hmm. he had the procedure, just one treatment of it, and it got rid of it. 
Really? And he was like, this is the most awesome thing ever. But Linda Evangelista did not have the same experience. Yeah. Um, she revealed, she's 57, she revealed uh, a few weeks back that she was pleased to have settled the lawsuit. But she basically got this big kind of, instead of doing what it's supposed to do, which is eliminate the fat, she got this kind of side effect that's like this big kind of glob of fat develops. And I don't know what it is about the procedure that creates this. She had seven cool sculpting procedures to break down fat cells in her abdomen, flanks, back, and bra area, as mm-hmm. well as her inner thighs and chin. Mm-hmm. Um, she says she wasn't aware that this was an adverse side effect that was associated with cool sculpting. But it essentially created like this kind of massive fat globule in the areas that she had the cool sculpting procedure done. And it wasn't even all of the areas. And it was really strange because she showed kind of a picture of it back on her, like beneath her bra roll in the back, you know, where your kind of armpit uh-huh. hits the, your back. And it was uh-huh. like this just fat glob that was kind of huh. weird shaped and kind of puffy and pooched out and she couldn't get rid of it. She had a bunch of other treatments to try to eliminate this fat glob, but it created these weird kind of globules throughout her body. And of course the settlement is not gonna disclose the amount, but obviously she filed the lawsuit for 50 million. So it had to have been, I bet you they probably settled it for 10 million, 5 million, something like that. Because of the the high profile nature of the case. But, and when you have those lawsuits of that nature, typically they do not disclose the amount. And as a condition of the settlement, they're not allowed to disclose the amount. Right. But it's, it's a really kind of a scary thing when you think that you think these sorts of procedures are kind of safe and that nothing bad is going to happen. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of one of those things where it, to me, I, I do think it should be on the consumer because anytime you're getting a procedure, there's always a risk involved. Like, there's nothing that's risk-free. You know what I mean? So... There's there's always an inherent risk involved. I mean, I guess if if they settled, then, then this was something that they did not anticipate a side effect of or an adverse effect of. But anytime you're having a procedure done, there's no, like, easy in and out procedure. There just isn't. I mean, you're putting your body through a lot of trauma to do anything like that. So I don't know. It's interesting. And I don't know anything about cool sculpting, so... I mean, you can. See, she posts some pictures online of like her face before and after the procedure, and like her body before and after the procedure, and it's just these really weird fat lumps and fat placement in the spots, like on her neck and around her jaw and around her bra roll, and it's just horrifying. Like the hmm. disfigurement that it created. Like prior to having it done, she wasn't even noticeably, I think like fat or anything like that. But now yeah. that she had the, the stuff done in that adverse effect, I guess in a limited number of individuals, instead of eliminating the fat cells, it causes them to reproduce in a really drastic way. Yeah. That, that, I mean, anything that's like labeled paradoxical, it basically means the adverse effect is that it does the opposite of what it's supposed to do. Yeah. But it's just terrifying that that's actually something that can happen. Um, Next article, and I don't know if we, I think we talked about this case, but you remember the, the GoFundMe scam the, with the woman who made like $400,000 off a GoFundMe like scam the about the homeless man? Yes. Yeah. Yes, 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 yes. Well, she got a year in, in prison 
But it says a woman who admitted her role in a scam that raised about 400000 using a fake story about a homeless man received one year in prison. Her name was Caitlin McClure, and she was also ordered to make restitution and serve three years supervised release. The 32-year-old Bordertown, New Jersey resident is scheduled to be sentenced on state charges next month and could receive even more prison time. So she got her mm. federal charges and state charges right. relating to this. Um, McClure and her then boyfriend, so they weren't they weren't married, um, but perhaps are married now. Mark Diamico fabricated the story about homeless veteran Johnny Bobbitt Jr. giving McClure twenty dollars when she ran out of gas at a Philadelphia highway in 2017. In truth, state and federal prosecutors said the group had never, excuse me, had met near a Philadelphia casino October 2017. Shortly before they, before they told their story, they publicized the story through local and national media interviews and created a GoFundMe account. More than 14,000 people donated, thinking the money was to help Bobbitt. According to prosecutors, uh, law enforcement began investigating after Bobbitt sued the couple, accusing them of not giving him any of the money, mm-hmm. which is just, are you kidding me? Who does that? You're, you're going to hell. Like, seriously. You can't do that kind of thing and, like, not think you're going to get in caught and get in trouble yeah. at some point but the federal criminal complaint alleged all of the money raised in the campaign was spent by march 2018 and large with large chunks spent by mcclure and damico on a recreational vehicle a bmw and trips to casinos in vegas and jersey damico described as the group's ringleader pleaded guilty to federal charges and was sentenced april 17th to 27 months in prison so okay. he got 27 months he was also ordered to make restitution and is scheduled for sentencing on separate state charges next month. Bobbitt was sentenced to five years probation on state charges in 2019 and faces sentencing next month on federal charges. So even though he didn't get any of the money, he still got yeah, charged. Yeah, he was still in on the scheme. But they just screwed him over and he told right. on them. But don't do that. This kind of stuff is just ridiculous. Yeah. Like, are you kidding me right now with all that? Scam, yeah. scam, scam. I mean... We got enough going on. Don't prey on people's goodwill. There's a lot of people on GoFundMe that genuinely, truly need help. Yeah, absolutely. And so it just makes people pause and, and give second mm-hmm. thoughts to contributing to cases like that that actually need help when they hear about scams like this. It's yeah. just... It's wrong. But... um Let's kind of jump into the main case for the day. And this one I thought was really interesting because um, this case, I've heard about it. I've heard probably three or four different podcasts about it. But this is the Summerton Man. And you know this case, right? Mm, Yes. Well, I guess it's a recently solved case. Yeah. I know. This is one I genuinely didn't ever think was going to get solved. So this is pretty cool. I first saw this on the BBC. Um, they had an article about it, and it caught my eye because I'd heard, like I said, multiple cases about the Summerton man. But the article says in '48, the body of a well-dressed man was found slumped on an Australian beach. He had he had a half-smoked cigarette resting on his collar, and there was a line from a Persian poem in his pocket. Investigators had no idea who he was. After more than 70 years, researchers say they've solved the mystery of Summerton man, and his name is Carl Webb. He was not a Russian agent, but rather a Melbourne-born electrical engineer. Um, I want to talk, first of all, about the case, and then we can yeah. talk a little bit about who this guy actually was in real life and all the little speculations yeah. that went along with it. But 
first and foremost, I want to talk about what was happening around the time that this whole thing went down. So this is like shortly after World War II. Mm-hmm. Okay, just as you a, said, 1948? Uh, 49. 49, okay. Um, the world's first nonstop circumnavigation flight happened that year. Um, one of the very first sitcoms, The Goldbergs, premiered on CBS, which mm. there was a Goldbergs that was out not too long ago either. I yeah. wonder if it had anything to do with that original Goldbergs. Um, Indonesia became independent that year. Uh, George Orwell's book, 1984, was published, which was kind mm-hmm. of a utopian or dystopian um, yeah. novel. The North Atlantic Treaty Organization, or NATO, was established that year. The de Havilland Comet uh, first commercial passenger jet airliner takes its first test flight. Nice. Uh, the world's first commercially available computer, the Ferrati Mark One, was released, which is huge. Most people think that it was Apple, but it right. wasn't. That was the first like personal computer. Right. Um, this is like the one that takes up an entire like floor of a building. Yes. Yeah. Um, the average cost of a new home that year was about seven thousand four hundred and fifty bucks. Oh is that not I insane? Wish. <laughs> 17 cents for a gallon of gas. Ugh. Average wages per year were $2,900. Wow. $1,400 for a new car. Wow. Um, you can get a kitchen table and chairs for 100 bucks. Ugh. Um, yeah. Interesting. Interesting stuff. Um, it was kind of an interesting time in history, a very kind of conservative time, but also there was a lot of growth in this country or, or in the world at that time after World War II because people had mm-hmm. sacrificed and rationed and saved money and couldn't buy things because there wasn't mm-hmm. the materials to make things during the war. So once the war was over, there was a period of prosperity and peace and a lot of buildings and a lot of people experienced financial growth and things of that nature. And that's kind of the background in which this whole case came to light. But yeah, and it's very this is very much around the beginning of the Cold War. So like, yes, technically the Cold War started as soon as World War Two ended, but it really kind of started with the Berlin airlift in like 1948 and stuff like that. Um, and that's really kind of when everybody took sides, like with the Soviets or you're with the West. And that's kind of where the delineation happened was it was just prior to the year prior. Yeah. So on the 1st of December, 1948, it's about 6.30 a.m. The police are contacted when somebody discovers the body of a man on Somerton Beach. This is about seven miles southwest of Adelaide, South Australia. He's found on the sand across from the crippled children's home. This location is now the corner of the Espalde and Bickford Terrace. So he's lying on his back with his head resting against the seawall, hmm. which is like this um, brick or cement wall yeah. that typically keeps uh, the beach from eroding or yeah. keeps flooding from coming inland. His legs were extended and his feet were crossed. A lot of people believe that he had died while he was sleeping, and there was this, as I mentioned earlier, an unlit cigarette on the right collar of his coat, resting almost as if he was going to, like, take a smoke. Interesting. And just dropped. But they searched his pockets, and they found an unused second-class rail ticket from Adelaide to Henley Beach, a bus ticket from the city that may not have been used, a narrow aluminum comb that had been manufactured in the U.S., there was a half-empty packet of juicy fruit chewing gum, 
an army club cigarette packet with had, that had seven cigarettes of a different brand and a quarter box full of matches. Mm-hmm. So there are witnesses at this point that came forward and said that the previous evening, which was November 30th, they'd seen this guy lying on his back in the same spot where the corpse was later found. Hmm. So they saw him around 7 p.m. and noted they saw him extend his right arm to its fullest extent and then drop it limply. So, like, he was still alive at that point, obviously. Yeah. But he didn't seem like he was fully, you know, normal yeah. and, and doing great if you see him kind of drop his hand limply. Another couple who was in that area at that time saw him from 7.30 to 8 p.m. And this is the time that the streetlights start to come on there. Okay. And they said that they hadn't seen him move during the half an hour that they saw him. That would creep me out. They did have the impression that his position had changed. Okay. So they don't think he's dead. They, right. you know, maybe he's sleeping or he's drunk or whatever. Uh-huh. And they commented that they thought it was really weird that he was not reacting to the mosquitoes. Mm. And so they thought he was drunk or asleep and they right. didn't investigate further, which, you know, I think people don't, especially back then, they didn't have any, really any reason to believe there's any foul play involved. Sure. So they just kind of were like, oh, he's drunk. Let him sleep it off. Yeah. Another witness said they saw a man looking down on him from the top of the stairs that led to the beach. And the witness said the body was in the same position when the police viewed it. So they basically are describing this guy at various times during the previous 24 hours in the same position. Mm-hmm. Another witness came forward in 1959, which is approximately 10 years later, and reported to police that he and three others had seen a well-dressed man carrying another man on his shoulders along Somerton Park Beach the night before the body was found. Hmm. According to a pathologist, this guy's name was John Burton Cleland, the man was of Britisher, which I have no idea what that means, appearance, and thought to be between the ages of 40 and 45 in top physical condition, quote-unquote. Okay. He was about 5'11", with gray eyes and kind of reddish-colored hair. Maybe you'd thin this thing back then. A ginger, <laughs> you like the redheads, right? I do love a ginger. Um, he was slightly gray around his temples because he was in his early 40s. Um, he had very broad shoulders and a narrow waist, hands and nails that didn't have any signs of manual labor. So like he's got softer hands. Mm -hmm. Typically during that period of our history, there was a lot of men that worked in manual labor and they would have kind of rough hands from construction type jobs or whatnot. He had big and little toes that met at a wedge shape, like those of a dancer, which I thought was interesting. So they thought maybe he was an ex ballet dancer or something of that nature. Because people that wear the boots or pointed toe shoes Uh um, of a dancer have their feet or tend to be a different shape. Yeah. He had pronounced high calf muscles consistent with people who regularly wore boots or shoes of high heels or performed ballet. Huh. So you know how they have those really like well-developed large calves that you can tell they're a dancer. So what was he wearing? He had on a white shirt, a red, white, and blue tie. It was like a dress shirt, wasn't it? Like yeah. A, yeah. Yeah. He was dressed up. Like, but back then, I mean, people weren't like, just, like... walked around. Yeah. People weren't like jeans and t-shirts. They were like yeah. slacks and dress shirts like yeah. all the time. He had brown pants on, socks and shoes, a brown knitted pullover. And then he had this like somewhat fashionable gray and brown double-breasted jacket. Okay. They said that it was American made. 
And what's strange about this is that all the labels on his clothing had been removed. Hmm. He had no hat, and they said that this was kind of unusual for the year, mm -hmm. and his wallet was gone. He was also clean-shaven and had no, like, identification card or license or anything, which I don't think was necessarily um, as common back then right. as it is now. Um, the police seemed to think from all of these different elements that he had somehow committed suicide. Um, they took his dental records and they couldn't find a match to anyone, which I think, you know, now it's much easier to find the identity of somebody with dental records than perhaps it was back then because a lot of people really didn't seek or have enough money to afford regular dental right. care back in the 50s. Well, and the other thing is, I mean, dental records only work if somebody call like identifies you as missing so mm -hmm. if nobody identified this person as missing then it's going to be really hard to find dental records for somebody yeah absolutely um they conducted an autopsy and they estimated that he died around 2 a.m on december 1st okay so when they opened up his chest cavity they could see that his heart was normal sized and there were no issues with it it seemed normal mm -hmm. Small vessels not commonly observed in the brain were easily discernible with congestion. Mm -hmm. There was congestion of the pharynx and gullet was covered with whitening of superficial layers of mucosa. Okay. With a patch of ulceration in the middle of it. Do you have any idea what that means? Um, I'm guessing it means he was like, he had like a sinus infection. Interesting. The stomach was also deeply congested and there was congestion in the second half of his duodenum. Do you know what Duodenum, that is? yeah, it's part of your um, part of your small intestine. There was blood mixed with food in the stomach. Both of his kidneys were congested, and the liver contained a great excess of blood in its vessels. And this is the pathology report. Hmm. The spleen was also strikingly large. They said, which is like this is such fifties language, uh, strikingly. Uh, about three times the normal size, and there was destruction of the center of the liver lobules. Uh -huh. Revealed under the microscope, acute gastritis, hemorrhage, extensive congestion of the liver and spleen, and congestion to the brain. What do you think that means as far as for the cause of death? With, I mean, congestion makes it sound like just an infection. It doesn't make it sound like anything necessarily nefarious, but I don't for sure know. You can have blood in your stomach from, I mean, if you get an ulcer or you have like a scratch in your throat and starts bleeding or, I mean, that's not, that's not unusual. Really? That's interesting. Yeah. The autopsy further showed that his last meal was a pasty, which is basically like a pie with meat in it. Ew. It's not as common here in the States, but it's definitely yeah. a European thing. And he ate about three or four hours before he died. Um, okay. They did further tests on him, which showed that there wasn't any foreign substance in his body. But again, this is 1950, so I don't mm. necessarily know that they were testing for an extensive range of poisons or different things that could potentially have caused this man's death, right? Sure. Um, the pathologist, Dr. Dwyer, concluded, I'm quite convinced that death could not have been natural. The poison I suggested was a barbiturate or a soluble hypnotic. What the heck is a soluble hypnotic? Like LSD? Like, I don't know what that means. Do you? I mean, soluble means it dissolved in, within this body. Um, I don't know what a hypnotic, other than, I mean, unless it's a hallucinogen, I don't know. Although poisoning remained a prime suspicion, the pastry was not believed to be the source, it says. 
Okay. So other than that, the coroner was really kind of unable to reach a conclusion about his identity, cause of death, or whether the man seen alive at Summerton Beach on the evening of the 30th of November was the same guy. Because right. nobody had seen his face. His body was embalmed December 10th, 1948, and the police at still at that point didn't get any kind of identification about this person to find out who he was. Then they find the suitcase. So on January 14th, 1949, they, they kind of follow up on the tickets that they found in this guy's pocket, mm-hmm. and they go to the Adelaide Railway Station, and they find this brown suitcase, which, surprise, surprise, the label is removed, like mm-hmm. all the other things this guy had on his body, right? And it had been checked into the station cloakroom after 11 a.m. on November 30th, 1948. So back then, they I think they had lockers back then, but there was yeah. like a, you could check your, your luggage at some sort of a, a, like a desk, almost like your coat check for your luggage. Mm-hmm. They believed that the suitcase was owned by this man that they found laying on the beach. Um, inside of the case was a red checked dressing gown in a size seven which is basically a bathrobe, Mm -hmm. for those that don't know. It's not a dress, it's basically a bathrobe. A pair of red felt slippers, four pairs of underwear, boxer shorts, something of that nature, pajamas, some shaving stuff, a light brown pair of trousers with sand in the cuffs, an electrician's screwdriver, a table knife cut down into a very sharp, short instrument, a pair of scissors with sharpened points, a small square of zinc thought to be used as a protective sheath for the knife and scissors, a stenciling brush, which was used typically by guys on merchant ships for stenciling cargo. Okay. Also, the suitcase had a thread card of Barber brand orange waxed thread of an unusual type not available in Australia. Hmm. And they believe that it's used to repair the lining in a pocket of trousers that he was wearing on the day he oh, died. Okay. Which is interesting in itself, because most people don't, especially men, don't tailor their own clothing. Maybe back then they did, I don't know. I mean, I'm sure it was probably more common back then, but it's definitely not something that is, I think, more common for men just in general. But I think perhaps because of the time period, um, the shortages in materials made it harder to get new clothes, and so people tended to repair the items that they had, if at all possible. In any case... The identification marks on the clothes had been removed, but the police found the name T. Kane or Keen on a tie, Keen on a laundry bag, and Keen on a singlet or an undershirt, along with three dry cleaning marks, 1171-7, 439, 3-7, and 305-3-7. Police thought that whoever took these clothing tags off either overlooked the three items or purposely left the keen tags on the clothing, knowing that um, this wasn't his name, the dead guy's name. So it was kind of to throw them off. Right. So at that particular time, wartime rationing was still enforced in those areas. So again, to my, what I was saying earlier about him repairing the trousers, it was also very common at that time to use name tags on clothing um, to remove the tags of the previous owners, um, because most people would buy used clothing because they couldn't oh, get new okay. clothing. So it's very possible that he bought used clothing and it was from somebody right. named... Uh, what was also unusual was that there were no spare socks found in the case, no correspondence, etc., although the police found pencils and unused letter stationery as well. So they looked into this T. Keen link, 
Um, and they concluded that there was nobody by that name missing in any English-speaking country during that time period. What are the odds of that? I don't know. I don't know that Keen was a common name. I mean, who knows, right? It doesn't seem super uncommon, though. It's, I mean, I, like, it's not Williams, but it's also not, like, my last name. You yeah, know what I mean? Yeah. They also checked into the dry cleaning marks and couldn't find anything with those. Hmm. So really, all that could be kind of gotten from the suitcase was that the front gusset and feather stitching on a coat found in the case indicated it had been manufactured in the U.S., which, again, not necessarily a huge red flag because of the, the extensive use of secondhand goods and, and sure, yeah. people tried to reuse things as much as possible. The coat hadn't been imported, um, indicating the man had been to the U.S. or bought the coat from someone of a similar size. Okay. Police checked incoming train records, and they believe that he had arrived at the Adelaide Railway Station by overnight train from either Melbourne, Sydney, or Port Augusta. They believe that he had showered and shaved at the adjacent city baths. There was no bath ticket on his body, but again, back then they had public baths, which seems super creepy mm -hmm. to me, but like basically places where you could go to pay a very small fee and bathe clean up, shower, and freshen up, up etc. Yeah. Um, before he had returned to the train station to purchase a ticket for the 10.50 a.m. train to Henley Beach. For whatever reason, he missed that train or didn't catch it, and he immediately checked his suitcase at the, at the station cloakroom before he left the station and caught a city bus to Glenig. Although named City Bass, the center was not a public bathing facility, but rather a public swimming pool, which, again... Uh, I mean, there's a subtle distinction there. Right. But in any case, the railway station bathing facilities were adjacent to the cloakroom, which itself was adjacent to the station's southern exit onto North Terrace. Okay. So the, King, the city baths at King William Street were accessed from the station's northern exit via a laneway. And there's no record of the station's bathroom facilities being unavailable on the day he arrived. So they believe okay. that he was hanging out in the area at the public pool, doing a number of things, checking his baggage, etc. Right. So they start looking a little bit further into this and trying to investigate to find out who this guy is. The pathologist re-examined the body and made a number of discoveries at that point. So I don't think initially there was reason to believe there was any foul play involved but then when they couldn't find anything mm -hmm. out about this guy they had to dig a little bit deeper and they found out that his shoes were really clean and looked like they had been recently polished so for somebody that had been wandering around the city all day like his shoes shouldn't be clean and well polished right well especially since he ended up on the beach exactly yeah um this kind of fit in with the theory that the body was brought to Summerton Park Beach after his death. So there's no evidence of vomiting and convulsions, which are the two main physiological reactions to poison. So mm -hmm. they believe that in conjunction with the kind of uh, witness seeing somebody carrying a man to the area, mm -hmm. with the fact that his shoes are so clean and there's no vomiting, there's no signs of convulsion, because if somebody's laying in the sand and they suffer convulsions or they vomit or whatever, you're gonna see it in the sand, right? Well, yes, but you're also going to see that in the autopsy because it's going to rough up like your esophagus and stuff like that. So there would be signs in the body of vomiting. Which, yeah, they didn't. So didn't if they're saying that. they didn't see any signs of vomiting, that probably means in the autopsy too. Yeah. So they are really starting to believe that he had died somewhere else and been dumped there. Mm-hmm. 
The fact that his death occurred seven hours after the man was last seen moving, they think implies that a massive dose could still have been undetectable in the time period before they found the body and were able to do an autopsy. Okay. So they had witnessed... So like it had metabolized. Exactly. In that seven hours. Okay. Um, and then him raising his hand and dropping it limply could have been a convulsion preceding death. The different people that were studying this said they would prepare. They were prepared to find that he died from poison, and it was probably a glucoside, and it was not an accident in administration. But they can't say whether it was administered by the deceased himself or by some other person. So they can't really conclude that there's foul play, like he right. committed suicide or somebody gave it to him. But they can't decide which. Um, and he's still considered an unidentified man. A plaster cast was made of his head and shoulders. Yes, this is creepy. In order to try to determine um, his identity later once they embalmed the body. So what was interesting, though, was this tiny piece of rolled up paper that was found with this guy. Yeah. And it had Taman Shud printed on it. And it was found in a fob pocket sewn within the man's trouser pocket. And in a fob pocket is basically a really kind of a smaller pocket inside of a dress jacket where the men would put their watch. Somebody was called in to translate it, and it basically means ended or finished. Mm -hmm. And it's found in the last page of Rubiat of Omar Kayan. The paper's reverse side was blank. Yeah. So they looked and found a copy of this book that had a similarly blank version and a photograph of the scrap of paper was released to the press to kind of maybe identify the handwriting or see if anybody knew somebody who had a handwriting that was similar to that. Um, it's really uncertain around, about the circumstances under which the book was found. One newspaper article referred to the book being found about a week or two before the body was found, but the South Australian police report the book was found just after the man was found at the beach at Summerton. So the timing is significant as the man is presumed based on the suitcase to have arrived in Adelaide the day before he was found on the beach. If the book was found one or two weeks before, it suggests that he had visited previously or had been in Adelaide for a longer period. Most accounts state ah. that it was found in an unlocked car parked at Jetty Road, either in the rear floor well or in the back seat. Yeah. So the theme of this particular book was to live life to the fullest and have no regrets until it ends. So this is basically why the police are theorizing that he committed suicide. Right. So this book that they found that it was missing the last page had a blank reverse and a microscopic test indicated the piece of paper was from the torn page of the book. So they like matched the two up. Um, in the back of the book were faint indentations representing five lines of text in capital letters. The second line has been struck out, a fact considered significant due, its, due to the similarities to the fourth line and possibly it represents an error in encryption. But it's like kind of um, the handwriting in the back of this book is like some sort of code, they thought. Yeah. They attempted to decode this and thought it was some words in a foreign language before they realized it was actually some kind of a secret code. And this is where they thought this guy was a spy, right? Mm-hmm. Well, because, yeah, it was also because it was 1948 and everybody's freaking out about the Soviet Union. And... Absolutely. And then they conclude in the 70s that it's some kind of meaningless jibber-jabber from a disturbed mind, they said. Hmm. Um, in 2004, somebody suggests that it stands for the initials, excuse me, it's time to move to South Australia Mosley Street, which 
doesn't make any sense either. Is that like a thing? Is that a common saying that we all no. know about? A telephone number was also found in the back of the book. Yeah. And it belonged to a nurse named Jessica Ellen or Joe Thompson. She was born Jessie Harkness in the Sydney suburb of Merrickville, South, New South Wales. She lived in this area near the location where the body was found. When she was interviewed, though, she said she didn't know the dead man or why he would mm-hmm. have her phone number. She had no idea who he was. Well, because they showed her the death mask. Yeah. They didn't show her, like, him. Right. So. so she's just like, yeah, no, I'm good. I don't know who this person is. Which, yeah. even if she did, I mean, would you say anything? I don't know. Like, it's just, it's a lot of information to receive at once to be like, and then also, do you know this guy? Like, it's just, it's, yeah. yeah. But they, authorities basically believe, believe that she was either being evasive or she just didn't want to talk about it. Hmm. So, like, people thought she was being shady. Right. Um, in 1949, she requested that police not keep a permanent record of her name or release her details to any third parties. Same I didn't know you could do that saying that it would be embarrassing or harmful to her reputation to be linked to such a case. Huh. Which, I think back then, a woman's reputation was significant. And so she was like, I don't want to be involved in that. Right. I'm, I'm a good girl, and I don't have anything to do with this kind of thing. Later in life, other people claimed that they had been given permission by her family to disclose her name and the, home of, and the name of her husband. So she's this married woman, and she, I think... Thought perhaps if her name was out in connection with this man, right. someone would think maybe she had had some sort of extramarital affair with him. Right. So there were a number of possible identifications that have been proposed throughout the years. Okay, so just really quickly though, the body was buried in 1949 in Adelaide's West Terrace Cemetery, where the Salvation Army conducted the service, which back then, if you died without, you know, a family or somebody to claim the body. They had charitable services that would have a funeral for you. Mm-hmm. Um, the South Australian Grandstand Bookmakers Association paid for the service to save him from a pauper's burial. Mm. But years after the burial, when people started hearing this story, flowers started appearing on the grave. So people like heard about the story, were interested in the mystery, and would just go put flowers on his grave. Yeah. Uh, police also questioned a woman seen leaving the cemetery but she claimed she knew nothing of the man and, and just heard about the case and was felt bad for him, so she brought him flowers. The South Adelaide Police Historical Society holds the plaster bust. It also contains strands of this guy's hair. Yes. But further attempts to identify the body have not been easy because the formaldehyde used to embalm the body destroyed much of his DNA. Right. So other key evidence no longer exists, like the brown suitcase, which was destroyed in 1986. And the witness statements disappeared from the police file years ago, which is interesting. Hmm. So there were a lot of theories that this guy was a spy due to the circumstances and the historical context of his death. Um, A lot of people are like, hey... There is Radium Hill Uranium Mine and the Woomera Test Range, an Anglo-Australian military research facility near where this guy was found. Um, Mm -hmm. The man's death also coincided with reorganization of Australian security agencies, which would culminate the following year with the founding of the Australian Security Intelligence Organization, the ASIO. This was followed by a crackdown of Soviet espionage in Australia, which was revealed by intercepts of Soviet communications under the, the Venona project. Sorry. Venona, yeah. 
Venona's really interesting. Um, and I could see where they would think this guy, you know, might potentially have been a spy. But I mean, yeah, like we're still catching people today that have been like living long term in the States. Like that was just a recent story. But they determine that, yeah, he's an electrical engineer named Carl Charles Webb. Charles Webb. His, he was 43 years old when he was found, slumped on the Adelaide Somerton Beach in 1948. So they guessed him to be in his early 40s because he didn't have ID mm-hmm. on him. But they determined that this, he's this Charles Webb guy and he's 43 years old. Um, so the person that found it was a University of Adelaide professor, Derek Abbott. And he was working on the investigation with the U.S. investigator Colleen Fitzpatrick after decades of independently researching this case. Carl Webb was born November 16, 1905, in Footscray to Richard August Webb and Eliza Amelia Morris Grace. Documents show that his father was born in Hamburg, Germany, mm. and was his family had been bakers. His mother okay. was born in Victoria, and Carl was the couple's sixth child, so he came from a big family. Mm-hmm. He has Russell, Frida, Gladys, Doris, and Roy were his siblings. He married Dorothy Jean Robertson, October 4th, 1941. So this is not, you know, he hadn't been married all that long. Right. At St. Matthew's Church in Pahran, Victoria, their marriage certificate lists Carl Webb as a 35-year-old instrument maker and Dorothy Robertson as a 21-year-old foot specialist. So, I mean, they weren't poor. I mean, if they have professions like that. And they lived in Domain Road in South Yarra in Australia. November 1948, the day before his body was found, this guy had bought a bus ticket and caught a bus from the railway station to Somerton Beach. Um, And a number of people saw him on the beach that day. Um, And I already kind of went over how he was found and what he was found with. And the coroner immediately started looking for him. And there's actually, I'm going to post some of the pictures from this article because it's really interesting. They actually show the the picture of the book with the text stripped out, which is pretty interesting. But October 1951, on the 5th of October, Dorothy Webb, his wife, put a public notice in the Age newspaper in Melbourne publicizing that she'd started divorce proceedings against her husband on the ground of desertion. So at no point mm-hmm. do they believe that this is the missing person, which is just blows my mind. Um, unless you entered an appearance at the office of the Supreme Court in Melbourne on or before the 29th of October, 1951, it says, the case may proceed in your absence and you may be ordered to pay costs. So she basically placed this ad saying, to whom it may concern, I'm going to divorce your ass yeah. if you don't come, like, respond to this. And he never did, right? So she relocated at that time to South Australia's York Peninsula. And it's not clear what led her to this little area and how long she lived there. But descendants of her sister have told Professor she, re- she remarried and died in the late 1990s in New South Wales, which is in Australia. So, okay. yeah, a lot of the articles were slim on facts, but there was one that I found that said, according to the divorce papers, he was fond of horse racing and betting. So this was one of the reasons why he and his wife had separated and were going through a divorce. So this obviously changes the sort of assertion that perhaps they went through a divorce because he deserted her. So interesting stuff. A lot of articles out there about it now with a lot of kind of varying amounts of information. 
In November 2013, Jesse Thompson, which is the woman that they somehow connected with this guy because her phone number was in the book, say that her daughter revealed that her mom told her she knew the identity of the Summerton man. She said she knew who he was, but she wasn't going to let that out of the bag. So maybe she was having an affair with this guy. I mean, it makes sense as to why he was potentially in the area. There's actually a picture of this guy, too, in this article, which is really interesting. It's an artist's impression of what he may have looked like. Mm -hmm. Good-looking guy, right? So did he have any... I do not believe he did. So October 9th, excuse me, October 2020, they released this picture of what this guy potentially looked like back then. Because before then, all they had was this Mm -hmm. black and white Mm -hmm. post-mortem photographs and the death mask, right? So it's a really interesting picture of this guy. Um, May 2021, the South Australian police exhume his remains from the Adelaide West Terrace Cemetery, and they hope that they can find enough DNA to solve the case. So this is Mm -hmm. a little over a year and a quarter ago. And they basically proceed with the DNA analysis at that point, and then July 2022, University of Adelaide researchers and genealogists announced they believe the the Summerton man's name is Carl Charles Webb. They arrived at the result by comparing DNA from hair stuck at a plaster bust of the man's head with samples uploaded by millions of people. So they basically did the gen match thing like this, like the how they found the Golden State Killer. So they, they take this man's DNA and they upload it with millions of people around the world in online databases used to create family trees. And they narrow it down from there. Right. But they didn't have his DNA from the exhumation. They had it from a hair that was in the death mask. Yes. Which is interesting. Yeah. And they say they are 99.9% confident they have correctly identified the Summerton man. And it kind of all makes sense, don't you think? It does, but it like it doesn't actually answer any questions. Because, like, what's this guy's deal? Like, what's his story? Did... Do they have any family? Have they reached out to any family? Like, what's going on? Did he kill himself? Did somebody kill him? I feel like he could have been a spy. He very well could have been. He could have been. I mean, there's nothing in this that narrows it down and says that he wasn't, right? Right. Like, there's, it doesn't, identifying him, like, doesn't, that still doesn't tell us anything because we don't know why he ended up where he ended up. We don't know the circumstances of why he left his wife. We don't have, like, nobody reported him missing. We don't know his, his story. We don't know what, what he where he worked. We just know he was an electrical engineer. And like pretty much everyone that was involved in this case back then is gone. Right. Uh, so there's really probably not going to be a whole much, a whole lot much more that they're going to find. But, yeah. I, I mean, I thought it was only a matter of time before they took the DNA and found out who this guy really was. Yeah, now it's, like, putting contacts. Like, if it would be very interesting if there's any, like, distant family that knows like oh yeah there was that like one uncle that my family kept talking about that he just like we lost track of them and like that ended up you know what i mean or they find some letters or like something somewhere that yeah says you know this person was a spy and i loved him yeah like i doubt he was a spy because like it's very rare that these mysteries turn out to be like as exciting as like our minds make them up to be but if he's just a standard run-of-the-mill electrician or like instrument Probably. maker or whatever how does he right. have like the dancer's body and like the whole like deal with that that i think is very mysterious i don't know i mean it doesn't say anything about him being a dancer so how does he it doesn't but also like you i mean you pointed out he that he was shape? probably wearing secondhand clothes 
Did he grow up wearing secondhand shoes? Like maybe he wore shoes that didn't fit him right. And maybe so they he was gave a him dancers Like there's legs? a lot of explanations. <laughs> that I just like, need more details. I need to know. Yeah, and we just and that's what that's what sucks. This is like it's answered because now we know who he is, but like that still doesn't tell us anything. Yeah, like what caused his death? Like for I know, sure. I know, so many questions still. So they're still doing research on this, and you know, it's interesting. So basically, they found this guy's identity identity by building a family tree with the DNA. Mm-hmm. They took about four thousand names and pared it down to one and track down his living relatives using DNA to confirm this guy's identity. They used it from a triangulation of two different, totally distinct parts of the family tree. And they said, it basically feels like climbing Mount Everest and having the mixed revelation that you're at the top, but also tiredness and exhaustion. Right. They now want to help solve the mystery of his death. So they would like to see toxicology done and would like to find out what happened to Dorothy, his wife. And that's kind of what they're working on next. But I find it, you know, uh, are they going to be able to find anything this late in the game? Probably not. And not to mention the fact that they already discussed that the chemicals used to embalm this guy's body probably got rid of any traces of anything that was still there, right? Yeah, if there's any um, if there's any other hairs in the death, death mask, that would be really helpful. But I don't know, like, I don't know what they'll get from an exhumation when, when he's already been embalmed. Yeah, but, I mean, we'll keep you guys posted once more yeah, details. Yeah, but I'm also not a medical examiner, so. Come out on this, but I thought it was pretty interesting. This, uh, Very interesting. The details on this, because I've heard this case so many times and speculated mm-hmm. in my own brain, what happened to this guy, and how did he get there? And Was he a spy? Because it seemed very mysterious, and the whole, you know, little scrap of the book in his pocket, and how, like, yeah. Almost romantical it was with the the, yeah. the woman's phone number and she denies knowing him and it just seems like this novel that the public perception has come up right. with this storyline that we created as a public we entity make something for up this like guy. so much bigger and grander than like what it really is and that's what always happens when these mysteries kind of get solved you're kind of like oh yeah it's very anticlimactic yeah. we're all just kind of like a collective wah wah but still there's still a lot we don't know so maybe there's more to be told about this guy. Hopefully. Okay, we're going to go ahead and wrap the episode up for the day. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, uh, please shoot us an email. We're at the podcast at gmail.com. If you would like to check out some of the pictures from this case, and there's a lot of cool ones in this that I'm going to try to post um, for your viewing pleasure on our Instagram. What is our handle there, Dars? Yeah, we are at the BFD podcast on Instagram. And like Sarah said, there's tons of pictures from this um, creepy death mask pictures, like the age um, progression picture or like the pictures of the drawings of what they think he looked like. And then the actual now we have actual pictures of him. Yeah, it's super interesting. And I I can't wait to share those on Instagram. Um, Please rate, review and subscribe. That's super critical to us as well. And please join us again next week when we talk more about weird, wacky, and wild cases. Good night, podcast peeps. Stay safe, keep it real, and always live your very best life. Bye. Bye, guys. <laughs>